Today's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, from verse 1 to 7. To the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship, and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, good evening. Good to see you. Um, I've been hanging out this afternoon here with the welcome afternoon that we had as well, and that was a really good time. Great time. So um, do look out for the next one of those. A really good way to um, get to know people, people who are new. Um, so um, let's pray together, and then we're going to look at what God is saying to us uh, through this passage. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us. You address us for our good, and you're not silent. That is good news. So help us to, to listen, and please, would you help us to respond by your Spirit's work in our hearts as we hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been changed inside by reading someone else's message. I don't know if you've had that, as in the message that wasn't intended for you in one sense. Um, a few months ago, I was sorting out uh, my father's files with my family, and uh, my father, he was, a, he was a gentle kind of man. And uh, we stumbled upon these letters about a business matter not that long ago. Um, and it was something quite difficult. And my dad had written this letter. Where he was absolutely furious. And I was startled by it. And I stood, I mean, the rest of my family were like sorting out all these things. It was in my mum's garage. And I, but I was just transfixed. Reading this letter, it's like, I had no idea he could write like that. He was justifiably furious, and uh, I was just transfixed. I'd never heard him like that. And, yeah, I was actually kind of strangely proud of him because of you know, the content of this letter. But it was just really startling, and it really changed me in some way. It changed how I thought of him in some way, and it changed me. You know, I was his son, you know. It changed me. I wonder if you've had anything kind of like that. Uh, over the next several weeks in Revelation, we're going to be reading these um, seven 
messages to churches in the early church in the first century. And if you have a Bible open, you can, you know, you can see ahead. They're kind of seven distinct messages. And so Revelation chapters two to three. And our prayer, our prayer is that God would change us as we read each of these in turn over the next kind of seven weeks. Uh, now these were written to seven real churches in history. It's important to, to mention that. I mean, they didn't have a website, I guess, back then, but they existed. You can exist as a church without a website. Um, and today you can go and tour the churches where they used to be. I don't know if anyone here has been on one of those tours. You can go to seven different sites with the ruins around Western Turkey. Um, I'd quite like to do that. Um, and what we're doing is a bit kind of eavesdropping on these messages to these individual churches. Um, so John, who wrote down his words, he's writing down Jesus' words to each church. Um, you might have noticed at the start there, it said that each letter is written, each letter is written to the angel, i.e., that means uh, to the messenger. It's debated kind of who that's referring to, but in Revelation certainly seems to be that angels, messengers, they're, they're spiritual beings which probably represent each church in the heavens. Uh, so we're eavesdropping on that message to each church from God's, from God's, God's spirit. That's what we're doing. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at this one in particular. Um, but seeing as we are, you know, before the first one of these seven, it's worth just uh, mentioning some of the patterns we're going to see. Um, because you can see they have a similar-ish kind of format. But there are some things to notice about them. First, um, each church is individual. Absolutely. So they have their distinct kind of problems going on. They're not identical. Uh, some face real persecution. Others not so much. And each has a distinct description of Jesus in that message, which is distinct, but it actually shows how Jesus faces their distinct problems. Uh, So each church is individual, uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, um, each church is complex, certainly. They're experiencing attacks from the inside of the church, from the outside. But those attacks can ebb and flow, and they can be subtle and change. It's complicated. Thirdly, each church is therefore under threat uh, from the outside or from the inside or from both, under threat. And within each church, well, imagine, you know, there's a variety of people, many different members of each church, and they won't all have the same problems as each other, individual people, but all members are called to kind of respond, uh, at least in some way, to those threats and what's happening. So they're under threat. And then fourthly, each church can win through. Each church can win through. And we'll see that very clearly. Because Jesus' victory is certain. They can win through. And we see similar patterns in all churches around the world. Each church is individual. Each church is complex. Each church is under threat in different ways. But each church can win through. And we're no different to that here at St. John's. So what about this first letter? Um, This first letter was written to the church in Ephesus. Now, has anyone actually been to Ephesus? Anyone? Oh, yeah. Joanna, Susan, a few people. Nice. Um, I'd quite be keen to go. There are some beaches nearby uh, as well. But um, I'd be quite like to go to Ephesus. You can see the ruins there. And it was a big city even at the time. Probably the fourth biggest in uh, the known world, really. It was a big uh, religious mix, 
quite a few Jews, Jews and also mainly pagan as well, but quite a mix of religions. And it was a place with actually a very big reputation. There was an imperial cult there, so there was worship of the emperor. And there was also one of the seven wonders of the world there, which is the temple to um, uh, Artemis, Diana. Very well known, big reputation and all sorts of different um, kind of religious kind of forces, really. And for that reason, from the time of the early church there, it was a place of big problems. Big problems there. I mean, it had been founded in about the 50s AD. Uh, you can read about that in the New Testament. But straight from the off, really, they'd had trouble. It had violence, actually. And there was a terrifying riot at one point. And also they were in trouble from un- unhealthy teaching that came in. And you can read about that in Paul's letters to Timothy in the New Testament. So all sorts of different problems, especially in the early days. And here, probably a few decades later, Jesus speaks to that church. So that's just kind of getting our bearings a little bit. But let's go into this passage. We're going to see three things, really. We'll look at it in three parts. We're going to see Ephesus, the church there. They were a faithful church, but they forgot how to love and yet they still had a future. That's what we're going to see. So do open your Bibles again if you'd like to follow along. We're going to look first of all at verses 1 to 3. Ephesus, the church there, they were a faithful church. So let me read from, verses one, from verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. What we see here in summary, really, is that Jesus... He's praising the Ephesus church for keeping going under fire and keeping out harmful teaching. He's praising for them that, for that. They've been faithful. Um, so notice something about Jesus here. Um, he holds, um, we're told that he holds seven stars and he walks about among seven golden lampstands. Now what is going on there? Well actually, if you just go one verse earlier, the last verse of chapter one, you'll see. It explains. He's pictured walking about his churches, like walking around the lampstand. It shows that he's in charge, and he knows. And that's the second thing that Jesus holds, but but Jesus knows. He says, I know, church, I know your deeds. He knows what the church has been doing. He knows all their deeds. Um, You might remember last week, we heard the description of Jesus, that his eyes were like blazing fire. This image of Jesus. Blazing fire, his eyes. Wow. So Jesus sees like fire. He knows absolutely everything. He knows. Now is that something we realize for us, I wonder? That Jesus is in charge and he knows everything about us as a church and what we've been doing. He knows it all. And that's reassuring, but I think that's also humbling, right? Because, you know, he sees way beyond our social media posts, the nice ones, you know? He sees way beyond how we like to describe ourselves to other people. He sees way, he sees it all, he knows it all. 
So notice Jesus there. Now notice actually how well the church has been doing, Jesus says. Don't skip over that. This is important. They've been doing well. They've kept going under fire. That's good. So verse 2, Jesus talks about their hard work and perseverance. And again, in verse 3, he says, Church, you've persevered. You've endured hardship. Okay. So they've kept going. Today, I mean, think of perhaps um, churches in northern Nigeria, perhaps, you know, attacked by Islamic fighters. It happens a lot. Uh, One recent news item, one Christian killed and at least 60 kidnapped in church accounts. That's being under fire. Hard to keep going. But church in Ephesus, they've kept going. Opposition um, coming their way, but they've kept going. Also, they've kept out harmful teaching. Jesus says that. That's verse 2 again. He says, Jesus praises them that they cannot tolerate wicked people. And then Jesus praises them for discerning well about false claims and false teaching. Now, this thing, um, Actually, previously, the church had been very naive. If you look at the letters in the New Testament, very naive. So this is, this is real progress, I think, we're hearing from Jesus. But you might think, I mean, okay, isn't like tolerance good, right? You know, shouldn't we tolerate everything? You might have that question. Um, I mean, actually, of course, sometimes tolerance can be really harmful. And we, in, we see that in everyday life. I mean, for example, as society, we would not, I should not tolerate incitement to terrorism. That would be harmful tolerance, you know. As a church, should we tolerate it if, um, I don't know, imagine... Imagine uh, one of us uh, goes away, uh, some other, I don't know, somewhere, uh, goes to a conference and comes back really, really excited and says, folks, I've got this brilliant new book and it's all about the secret life of Jesus and it promises us a totally new higher level of spirituality. Brilliant. Can I do a talk on it? Can we talk? That probably would be harmful to Tolerate that. That wouldn't be healthy, actually. Well, do you know what I mean? Would that be good for the church? Jesus is saying these, these are, this is a vital part of being church. We need to be careful and uh, we need to think carefully about what we're hearing from each other. And Ephesus Church had done well. They had been faithful to Jesus in really important ways. Really important ways. Um, so let's think for ourselves as a church. These are important. Jesus says these things should be on our radar. Yeah, yeah, keeping, keeping going, enduring when it's tough, and keeping out kind of teaching that would be harmful in different ways, you know. So how well, how well are we keeping going? Have a think about that. How well would we keep going if we were really under fire from opposition? How faithful is our teaching? I don't just mean kind of from here, but kind of in our groups and you know that kind of thing. And how faithful is that? Are we in danger of tolerating anything harmful? That would be a helpful question to ask anytime. What needs to be faithful? Jesus says, "Yeah, be faithful." So that's the first thing. Those opening verses. The church in Ephesus—they've been—they've been—they've been faithful. That's good. Secondly, let's move on to verses four to five. Because the tone changes here. Now, you might have noticed that. They've been a faithful church, but, but they forgot how to love. They forgot how to love. 
So verse 4. Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Okay, right. What does that mean, kind of to remove a lampstand? Well, it's a warning, really, from Jesus, saying if things don't change, I'm going to leave you. So really, in summary, Jesus is saying, well, Jesus is warning the church here that they must go back to loving each other like they used to do, or else there won't be church anymore. No love, no church. That's what Jesus is saying. No love, no church. Now, a question we might have is kind of what, what love are we talking about here? Are we talking about love for God? Are we talking about love for each other as church? Uh, well, surely it's both. It's got to be both. And the Bible always tells us to distinguish between those two. It's a false distinction. At the New Testament, love for God, love for others, joined together. That's a massive theme all the way through the New Testament, again and again and again, and the Old Testament. And the letter to the Ephesians, written to the church of Ephesus, again, huge issues. So much about walking in the way of love. Growing in love for Jesus and growing in love for people around. And they had the Jews and Gentiles and how they would love each other. So you can't divorce these two things. You can't have a false distinction, really. I've been enjoying reading uh, an author, a pastor in America, kind of pastor of a big, um, uh, very multi-ethnic church in a part of New York, a guy called Peter Scazzaro. Just uh, found his writings really helpful recently. And... Um, he um, talks about discipleship, following Jesus, and um, he talks about kind of some failures that undermine deep discipleship, following Jesus well. And one of these things he points out, I suggest, uh, is that we no longer measure our love for God by the degree to which we love others. He doesn't mean that love for God doesn't matter. It's secondary. He's not saying that. What does he mean by this? Let me read just a couple of paragraphs from him to explain. He says this. Jesus repeatedly focused on the inseparability of loving God and loving others. When asked for the one greatest commandment, Jesus identified two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul made the same point in his first letter to the church of Corinth. He warned that great faith, great generosity, even great spiritual gifts without love are worth nothing. Nothing. In other words, in other words, if those around us consistently experience us as unapproachable, cold, unsafe, defensive, rigid, or judgmental, Scripture declares us spiritually immature. Right. Okay. I mean, I wonder what, what do you think of that? I want to talk to someone about that afterwards. Well, I wonder what you think of that. So he's saying, Ephesus, faithful to God, to do anything for him, it seems. But they'd forgotten how to love. And I find that quite scary. It's very possible to be faithful, but unloving. Do you see? Instead, how to gauge kind of maturity, well, yeah, faithful is good, really good, but how do you love? Do you love? 
Didn't you know I got 95% on my Bible knowledge quiz? Okay, but do you love? Didn't you know I uh, stood up to my uh, anti-Christian HR boss three times last year? Okay, um, do you love? Didn't you know I write to my MP every month about Christian values? Okay, okay, okay. Do you love? Do you love? How are people when they're around us? Generally, are we approachable or unapproachable? Are we cold or warm? Are we unsafe or safe for people? Are we defensive or are we open? Are we rigid or are we flexible? Are we judgmental or are we loving? Jesus says, oh, that really matters. That really matters. Uh, I remember back to, I have no idea how long ago this was, maybe 10, 12 years ago. I remember being on a tube journey, going to my previous church in a midweek evening kind of thing. There was, uh, there was a certain person at that church at the time I just found really awkward. And we just never seemed to click. Um, and, you know, you can picture it on the tube. You're standing by the doors and doors open. And this guy walks in and then he sees me. And I was like, Ugh. right, you're laughing. I think you know. <laughs> yeah. And I felt I'm just desperate to escape. How many stops have we got? How, how loud is the tube going to get so I can get away with not having much conversation? I'm being honest. I'm not saying that was a good thing to have that thought in my head. You know, I was just desperate to run away. It's like, oh, just, just too awkward. Imagine if I had run away and just said, oh, I'll see you, and just gone down a few tube carriages. Can you imagine how that would have felt to that person? What do you felt loved? <laughs> I imagine how easily we can do that as church and how that can make others feel. Very easily done. No love, no church, Jesus says. It can be hard. It can be really hard. We all know that. It's good to be honest. Um, actually, someone said to me not, uh, at one point that um, said this comment. Um, it's just one or two people. I just, I just find um, really difficult. And I can't believe I'm going to spend eternity with that person. It's hard, right? It is hard. Sometimes we just don't click and things are difficult. So what do we do? Oh, we need to see each other as God sees us. We need to love as God loves. Um, something I find really helpful from um, C.S. Lewis, uh, the author of uh, Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, and uh, he wrote lots of Christian books. One particular thing, reading recently, um, to view each other, when we see someone or think of someone in church, or actually he was even beyond church as well, to imagine what that person would be like in glory, in the heavens, when they are with God face to face and we're with them. That person who we might find difficult or whatever, you know, if we were to see what they would like as a trans, would be like as a transformed person, sinless, we would be tempted to worship them because they would be so reflecting God at that point. We'd be tempted to worship them. That person is going to be like that in the future. However awkward or whatever they are in the moment. Do you see? 
See each other as God sees. Love as God loves. That would be the love of God reflect. <sighs> Jesus says love. No love, no church. Let's see each other like that. So the church in Ephesus, they were a faithful church. But they'd forgotten how to love. And then lastly, lastly, verses um, 6 to 7. Yet they still had a future, thankfully. They still had a future. So from verse 6, Jesus carries on. He says this. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now to say, uh, we don't know for sure who that group were, but they were clearly a danger to the church. And he carries on, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, in summary, what's he saying? Jesus, Jesus is promising to the church that if they listen and learn from him, they'll win through. They will. So do you see, there's, a, there's quite a serious call here. It says, let them hear. Now, that's, that's a strong word. It's more like, listen closely. Do what I've said. Listen closely. So it's, it's not God's Spirit condemning. It's God's Spirit kind of inviting and kind of wooing them. So listen, come on. Serious call. And do you see, there's actually a very serious future ahead of this church, of these people, if they listen. Eating freely from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the last chapter of Revelation, last chapter of the whole Bible, will picture the new creation uh, with a tree of life. Okay? And it will say this. This is Revelation 22, verse 2. It says, The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No curse. Original good creation fully restored. People and God face to face. Now, that's a serious future ahead of them. Listen, Jesus says. Uh, A question we might have is, um, well, actually, for this church, then, what was their future then? How did it turn out? Did these words of Jesus actually change anything? Did it have any impact on them? What happened? Um, I don't know if, uh, Joanna, Susan, if you can remember back to your tour... And uh, looking at these ruins of Ephesus, this old city where the church would have been. And I, if you can imagine going there, what would it be like to look out of those ruins? And imagine reading this passage as you're looking at those ruins. Okay? You've got your Bible open and you're reading it. What are you thinking about the Ephesus church at that point? I wonder. It might be easy to think, told you so, church gone, your fault. Could be very easy to think that. But let's slow down a bit, actually, because can you guess or do you know roughly how long the Ephesus church stayed around? Any idea? Well, one commentator says this there was a Christian church for the whole of the first millennium of the Christian era. 900 years or so after this. Oh, okay. Wow, they still had a future. A thousand years. Turns out they still had a future. So then, that being the case, another question, how do they turn it around? Also, to answer that, we have another letter sent to them a few decades later than this. 
There's a guy, well, the Bishop Ignatius, I don't know a lot about him, but he wrote this letter in 115 AD. He wrote to this church in Ephesus, and you can read it online. Um, And he wrote lots of things, but let me read one sentence that the bishop said to them. He said, church in Ephesus, he said, by your concord, that's peace, by your peace and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is being sung. Isn't that beautiful and amazing? You see, decades later, the church was there. The church was healthy. How? Peace and harmonious love. Peace and harmonious love. Jesus Christ is being sung through that. They'd forgotten how to love, but then they remembered how to love. And they practiced it. They did it. That's the same for us. If we've forgotten, we can remember. That's God's grace to us. So as we come towards a close, really, one, one final question would be this. Why, why, why do we come to church? Why do you come to church? I wonder if you actually kind of thought about that in one sense. Why do you, why do we come to church? We might feel it's to feel uplifted for the week. Okay. We might feel it's to help me stay faithful. Good. It might feel it's to fill our heads with Bible knowledge. Okay. And Jesus would say those are good things, but most of all, come to love and be loved. Come to love and be loved. Come to grow in enjoying God's love. The love of God the Father who adopts us as his children. The love of God the Son who suffered for us and rules over us. The love of God the Spirit who is in us and with us. Come to grow in enjoying God's love and then that flowing out to loving the people around you. Come to love and be loved. Make that our reason to come. Of course, it doesn't look impressive. It doesn't. It just looks like maybe walking up to someone new to say hello, offering to sit with them as long as they need. It could be uh, noticing when so-and-so hasn't been around and just chucking them a text. How are you doing? Are you okay? It could be remembering someone's interview that they worried about. How did it go? We prayed for you. Oh, it could look like seeing the person you snapped at last week, seeing them approach, and you approach them and say, look, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me for that. It doesn't look impressive, but it matters. No love, no church. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We want to praise you for your unfailing love. Though we could never deserve your love for us, but you've made us, you've loved us, despite all that we are. And we are sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry for forgetting, being self-absorbed, even faithful but proud. Oh, we thank you that you have loved us far more than we could ever imagine. Help us to never forget. Stir us up by your spirit to be open, approachable, not judging, but loving. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.